Welcome to this week's It's the Wilderness podcast. I have uh, just scrolled through the, our podcast feed and we, uh, we've we missed our birthday, the podcast birthday. And would you believe that we're four years down into the fifth year? And I would like to hear from anyone who has listened from the beginning. We, we know there's a lot of you. There's now. a lot. Let us know. We want to know what this journey has been like for you. Yeah. Four years of podcasting. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's crazy, really. And the guests and the spectrum of people we've had on has been absolutely phenomenal. From almost every corner of the globe. Yes. So welcome back to another show. I am Byron Pace and Daryl is sitting opposite me for the first time in, it seems like forever, but at least three or four shows. Yes. On this show, we have a podcast that I recorded when I was in Montana with Tyler Sharp working on Volume 4, Modern Huntsman. Uh, our guest is Valentine Thomas, who is a spear fisher. She has previously been on Joe Rogan's podcast. She has a cookbook out. She's done TED Talks. She's also a chef. Previously a lawyer, worked in finance in London, freedive instructor, contributed to uh, Volume 4, Modern Huntsman. Uh, there's a story about her and also a whole bunch of recipes. Uh, fascinating discussion did, about spear fishing and ocean conservation. Did you ask her how how she got on with the Joe Rogan podcast. I'm not sure if we did talk about it in this show. Oh, it would just uh, be cool to yeah, no, I hear about we it. We talked about it socially, I think, Okay, uh, you know, over the couple of days that I spent with her. Um, and yeah, I think she, she, she enjoyed it. I haven't listened to it now, but I just found it before found recording it. Ah, this. So okay. I, need to, I need to go and actually listen to the podcast she did with Joe. I see. Well, I'll, I'll try and listen to it. Well, well, I've listened to a lot of his shows, but then he, he has he thousands. He has like 1,500 shows yeah. out or something crazy like that. But it's a fairly recent show. We have a winner from our Guess the Sound competition from two weeks ago, which was a bald eagle. Uh, and the winner entered on Instagram was Sam Dean. So congratulations, Sam. Congratulations. Uh, contact us uh, via Instagram again if you like, and we will get a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman, out to you, all about wildlife management. And we have the chance for everybody to win a copy with this show again. And we're going to stick with our uh, guest the sound because it's just so incredibly popular. And I'm always astounded the amount of people that take the time to enter. So we can Educational and fun. That's yeah, why ab- it is. Absolutely. So we're going to play another sound for you now. All you have to do is tell us what makes this sound, and you will be entered into the competition to win a copy of Volume 3. And now you've had a good listen, guess. Let us know. Email. In fact, we've had, we had quite a few emails, guesses, on the last one. So podcast at paceproductionsuk.com or uh, Instagram. And of course, Modern Huntsmen are our partners on this podcast, and you can now pre-order Volume 4, the women's edition, on their website. So modernhuntsman.com, go over there and get that pre-order done. Yes. It's already been, because all of the 
sort of the, the rest of the world orders, you get directed through our website. So you can also go to thepacebrothers.com if you want to order. And I've already seen volume four. I was going to say flying off the shelf, but it's not flying off the shelf because it hasn't been printed yet. But it will be flying off the shelf because loads of people loads have been people ordering have it. ordered. Uh, so get your pre-order in if you want to guarantee getting the first batch. And on the shop, we now have refill packs for the gunpowder... Uh, seasoning so that's been a long time coming we're waiting for the labels for it for a long time and so now you don't need to buy the the whole tin you can just buy the packet and just refill your tin and it's cheaper so there you go i sent a tub of our gunpowder seasoning to hawaii this morning there you go that's i think that's the first package we've ever sent to hawaii so whoever ordered from hawaii (laughs) thank you very much um before we jump into the podcast we need to say a big thank you to our top-tier patrons, which include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McCraith, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, and James Marchington. In fact, I was speaking to someone the other day that is speaking to the team at South Ayrshire Stalking to organise some stalking, but they're not from this, this country. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, Chris gave me a call just the other day to catch up because he has been nominated for Stalker of the Year, I think, for the British Shooting Awards. Really? Yeah, uh, something like that. So congratulations, Chris. Well, there Apparently you go. we've been nominated for something, but I haven't had the time to even look into it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're nominated to, like, contact you to let uh, you know. I don't you... know. I think our name's on a list somewhere. I'd better look into that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, anyway, so if, if you're interested in the awards, go online, have a look, see who's on it, and uh, and then go and vote for Chris. Yeah. And if you would like to support the show, head over to Patreon, look up the Pace Brothers, and there should be a tier which fits your needs. Yes, I, I actually noticed there was one, two new patrons. We've got a couple new dollar uh, patrons. Yes, we've, we've got, we've got the, the lowest tier is a dollar, and every dollar is welcome. Yes, and then I, I saw the other day there was someone else just did another ten dollar patron. So yeah. yeah, they're coming. They're coming in thick and, and fast, it and we truly really- makes a big difference. Yeah, it really does. So without any further delay, here is our conversation with Valentine Thomas. Valentine, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We are recording this. I'm having deja vu here a bit because I recorded at this exact table with you, Tyler. We're sitting in Montana. And the last time we did that was with the guys from Bear Trust, mm-hmm. which was a great podcast. In February? February, March. Yeah. Something like that. It's. Uh, I don't know if you would agree, but it's, uh, it's definitely warmer than when I was here. <laughs> But it's uh, winter is coming. Yes, it's a little earlier toss. than we hoped for. Uh, I know, like we've been hanging out for the last couple of days uh, while I've been up here um, with Tyler, um, and I know that you were weirdly in London working in the finance world, basically the same time I was there. But I know you for spear fishing and making awesome food, which I can attest to now because now I've eaten <laughs> some of your food. Uh, how did you go from the city of London to spear fishing? You know, what's that story? It was it was very random. So I was I just moved to London and I had friends who introduced me to freediving and spearfishing. Two things that I've never even heard of before. So this wasn't part of you growing up? Not at all. I'm born and raised in downtown Montreal. There's not there's not much of water around, so it's it was very remotely introduced to me. And then um when I, I first went freediving in Egypt, so my friend literally dragged me there because I didn't want to go. Um, I was actually, funny enough, I was really petrified of the ocean. When I was 14, I passed out underwater, and since then I just refused to set foot in the sea for a lot of years. But so you were obviously a pretty decent swimmer. 
point, not no, really. No, really no, I'm not really good at swimming. The friends do all the jobs for me. <laughs> <laughs> so then I'm, I'm, I'm arriving in Egypt and I'm, I'm kind of liking it, but, you know, not like life-changing passion type of thing. And um, a couple months later, we went on a spearfishing trip in Ascension Island. Ascension Island is one of the most elite and difficult spearfishing destinations in the world. It's a great place to start then. It's a super great place to start. So um, it's right in the middle of the Atlantic. So it's right in between Africa and Brazil. There's really nothing for miles and miles and miles around it. So it was interesting. And so my first time I'm in the water, we're blue water hunting. So that means we're very deep and we're hunting for pelagics. So Freediving. Freediving. And my friend is explaining to me, he said, okay, so you're going to have to, we're going to drift and the boat is going to follow us. We're going to be in 200 feet of water and you're going to have to make drops and try to shoot a fish and try to get eaten by a shark. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to do that. But I went anyways and I, I probably had a panic attack on the boat because I was really wondering what the hell I was doing there. It was, I was not comfortable at all. I was as far as possible from my comfort zone as you can think of. And then I shot my first fish, and that night we just grilled it on a beach, and we watched the sunset, and this is what made me fall in love with it. And there was no turning back at that there point? There was no turning back after that. After that, it was it was a weird shift in my life. because so how long ago was that? That was in 2011. Okay. So about eight years ago. And um, when I came back to London, I didn't want to do my job anymore. Food was boring. People were boring. I was like, I, I just, know this feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a complete shift, and what I liked and what I valued, what I wanted out of life, like it's everything just completely changed in my life. I've always been a very career oriented person, and this is why I did my law degree and then my master in law, and then I wanted to be a lawyer. I want to make a shit ton of money, and this was always what I've dreamed of since I was a kid. Like that bad is a point at when I was seven, I looked at my mom and I said, well, when I grow up, I'd rather make a, like a lot of money and have a job that I don't like than have a job that I like with no money. Not funny enough, that's what I do. I make barely no money and my mom is mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, so, yeah, so at, at, at that point, just literally everything changed. And I got hired to make a documentary in South Africa in 2016. And when I came back to London, it was, it was, that was it. So during this period of time, so 2011, 2016, you're still working in I'm still working. And my because life. Because now this is all your life, but this is, you, yes. were, you were, at that time, were you trying to find how you could make it more of your life? Or was this yes. more just sort of working and then funding holidays to go and spearfish? Just everything kind of shifted. And I used to go on holidays with my friend in Ibiza or we were going and on the Côte d'Azur on boats and just having a good time and this is what this is what my life was pretty much about and all of a sudden I was just trading that type of holiday just to go and support remote areas to catch my own food and all my friends were like but who are you? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do with my friend? <laughs> well and then they did a documentary about you leading a double life was it a French documentary or something that they did? Yeah it was so French So this is the 2016 one? Yes yeah. so, so how did that come about? Just he was looking for a female who spearfishes who lives in Europe, 
not many options out there. <laughs> <laughs> so that came out. Were you happy with the output of that? Is there? Can people see that anywhere? Now, yeah, no, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, when I watch it, I almost feel super embarrassed by it. I guess because I just look at myself and I'm like, I was just leading a life that was just completely different. As I was living in a fantastic apartment, I had a brand new Mercedes, I had two dogs. And so this like, is all in the documentary? Yeah. <laughs> I like partying and it was just, it was a complete different, I guess, step of my life. So how did you extract yourself from that? Because that's a, it's a discussion that I've had with people quite often when I you know talk about the route that I've taken to where I am now. And it, it takes a lot to get yourself out of that way of living because it's it's a big break it's a big change i mean if nothing else there's a, a massive monetary aspect to it like you still got to eat at the end of the day so, so how, how did you get yourself out of london because a lot of people it's always the intention you go there you make money then you leave uh, but like most of my friends they never they never get out i mean it's it's it happened kind of so at the end of the summer i decided to go spend um five weeks in tanzania and zanzibar it's a terrible part of the world. Right? I don't know why you'd want to go. <laughs> well, because my friend has like a, a charter business there, and he's like, he told me I could, he would rent me a room for five bucks a day. So I said, okay, that's fine. That's what I would spend at Tesco anyway. So might as well just go there and try something different. And then this is when I was there, but I really realized that I was chasing the wrong things for so long. It's, you know, that's, you, you know, about the London life is getting a raise. What you do, you get an apartment a little bit bigger and then you get a car a little newer and then it's chasing it's, superficial it's, stuff. Exactly. And then I was there for five weeks, didn't wear shoes once. And I was just bonding with locals and I went fishing for my food. And all of a sudden I just felt that I was not chasing after anything anymore. I just felt super at peace. And it was very, it was very surprising and remote to me because I'm not, I'm not born in the outdoors whatsoever. Like I'm, I'm born in the big cities, but it's I just find myself and I found my happiness and stuff that I, I, I even first of all knew existed, and second of all, very far away from who I was and what I like or my values or anything like that. Uh, but it, it certainly looks like, from what I know about you now, that there's absolutely no turning back. No, not a chance. Not a chance. My mom really wants me to, but no. <laughs> <laughs> and where did the, I mean, you, you, you said that it was the, the, the food aspect and that connection with um, being responsible for taking something out of the sea and eating it that, was, that really was what captured you. But when did the, the actual like cooking yourself really, because it looks to me, just judging from like the last two days with you, that that's a really majorly important part of what you do and who you are now. Oh, my life revolves around food. Okay. Always. It's when I plan my day, I'm like, okay, what I'm going to have for lunch and dinner. Then I plan other stuff around it. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's became, I've never been trained for it or anything like that. I just always like, since I was four, I started baking and making little stuff. And in college, I was organizing dinners. I was the only weirdo that was organizing dinner. Being, I go, tonight we're going to have chicken, masala, lamb and, and rice. And my friends were like eating hot dogs. <laughs> I spent all my money and food. So... It's kind of why I guess this is this whole aspect of spearfishing that I really like because when I started spearfishing, I didn't even like spearfishing. I was still petrified of the water. I was not comfortable. I was not having a good time. I was feeling like I didn't belong there whatsoever. I felt super weak. I felt super vulnerable. And it's, it's, 
but then the, the, the food aspect just made me push through it because having those amazing dinners um, with friends when you're sharing what you caught and just always eating fresh fish and lobsters and a bunch of amazing stuff that I didn't even know existed because you don't find a lot of those fish in the supermarkets. And I just decided to push through and now it's good luck getting me out of the water because it's... So I now, just now you like say, eat both of them equally. <laughs> exactly. But it took me a while. It took me a good like three years to be comfortable in the water. I want to talk about the, the actual spearfishing process well, because it's... Before we oh, jump too far okay. ahead though, because this is an amazing part of her story uh, that I'm struggling to write about for our women's issue, is the transition when you actually decided to leave London and you moved to Miami. Tell him a little bit about that because that's that's something I think that a lot of people wish they could do and the struggle you went through and oh. the, the, low, <laughs> the low parts of that, right? Now, if people see you online, they're seeing the success you've created for yourself, but I think it's important for you to talk about wh how, what it was like before that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's quite a, a bit of people who are telling me, Oh, I wish I had your life, but really I don't, it's, it was, so when I decided, when I came back from um, Tanzania, and this is when I, I decided that I just want to quit everything. I had no plans. I didn't have an idea. I just thought I'm just going to go somewhere warm and people aren't going to contact me and, I'm going to have contracts. Of course, that did not happen. <laughs> I left London because London is not really a place where you save a lot of money. So I no. left with about 2,000 pounds. I left, grabbed my dogs and moved to Miami. So I get there thinking that our rent are going to be super cheap because everywhere apart from London is super cheap. Um, and no. So I found an apartment for like 1,300, an apartment, a room with no kitchen. <laughs> For like $1,300 after two months, <laughs> no money left. <laughs> I, I, so it was just me and my dogs just not knowing what my next move would be. And that's, that's scary. It was a little bit scary. My parents were freaking out. But so I was sleeping in different on my friend's couch with people I didn't even know. I was like, oh, can I crash your couch tonight? And it was, I was super embarrassed because I just came back from a life that was extremely comfortable when I didn't miss anything to something completely opposite. I had to sleep in my car a few nights because I didn't have a place to go. And it's, I was just, I had no money. I was completely broke and I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. But then at some point I just realized that, you know, if you want to build something for yourself, then you're going to have to work for it. You can just not be sitting in a beach with your dogs waiting for people to call you. <laughs> it would be very easy at that point <laughs> To just say, screw it, I'm going back. This is too tough. I, I could have, but we, th that's actually the weirdest part of the story is that even though I was struggling like hell to You're survive... You're probably enjoying life more, right? I had, I, I've never been that happy than than, than than then. Even though I didn't have access to a lot of, of, of material stuff, I was just I was just super happy. I felt free. And this is something that I've never really felt in my life, always following the path of going to university, getting a degree, getting a master and getting a job and trying to get everything, getting to the system very quickly. It's like a treadmill you can't get off. Exactly. Now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you know what I can do today? Pretty much everything. <laughs> and it's, I was just enjoying that so much. So even though it was a very hard and bumpy road to get to where I am today, I, I, I've never, ever regretted it. So what was the, what was the kind of breakover point? You know, during that period where you started to see that, okay, this is possible. I'm going to be able to 
feed myself. I mean, obviously, I guess feeding yourself wasn't wasn't difficult because you just go and hunt it. <laughs> um, but you know that you could actually get your own place, and there was a future there that that looked somewhat kind of you know normal. Well, I, I actually started focusing and and realizing that what I was doing is running a business, even though if the business is about like kind of what what I do and, and my own person, which is awful, but it's you still have to put a lot of work behind it. And as soon as I started putting the work, this is when I started to see all the results. When you started treating it like that. Exactly. So that was Miami, but you live in Florida now. Yes, I live in Miami for about six months. I live in Fort Lauderdale for about two years. I live in the Bahamas for a year. So this was just like chasing good spearfishing spots? No, it was just following with the flow of life and just wherever it was cheap for me to stay and comfortable and warm enough. And that's pretty much it. I moved out from the Bahamas about a year ago. And then my friend who was renting me a room who actually ended up giving it to me for free because I was never there and it just felt too bad but he's <laughs> not you're always away fishing yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm home maybe like two three days out of the month so he just felt bad and um, his best friend was over one day and he was telling me oh, I'm gonna have to sell the house because I'm moving somewhere else I was like oh crap I don't have a place to live after that and his friend said oh do you want to live with me so I said oh okay and I moved in two months later so it took me to all the way to Tampa and then north of Florida so it's not, <laughs> it's not, a, bad, it's a, not a bad place to live. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> At home, there's a little bit of spearfishing that goes on back in the UK, but it's not a big thing. Um, probably because the water's really cold. Actually, uh, my second time spearfishing was in... Was in the UK? It was in um, in the south, uh, Dorset. Yeah, yeah. There's Dorset. some good, really good fishing in Dorset, <laughs> yeah. Um, but not a lot of people do it. You know, I know like two or three people and I free dive a little bit but you know not to any great extent my brother spear fishes from time to time it's a little bit dangerous and the way like there's a lot of current and the water is very murky so it's not really a beginner's kind of place mm. but what's the explain the process for people who have well they, most people have heard of spear fishing but you know <laughs> you're you're down pretty deep it takes a lot of training and it's you've got to be pretty fit to do it well and now, every now and then you see uh, you see stories of people getting killed because they get wrapped up in their lines or you don't actually you don't you don't have to be fit you don't have to you don't have to be fit to do spearfishing um it's i saw people that were very old and i saw people that are very out of shape surely you do kind of but not it's more mental i would say spearfishing is about 80 percent mental and then the rest is just all about you know aiming good (laughs) i mean how how long are you holding your breath underwater because you know most people are sort of 30 seconds it depends. You experienced this, Tyler, when you're <laughs> yeah. So when you're in, in, you're in Florida, and for people who aren't familiar with spearfishing, I don't even think that term accurately describes it. It's fish hunting. Fish hunting, yeah. Yeah, and I had never, even though I'd been around it and I'd seen it, and I had friends who do it. I guess I had never really had enough of interest to explore it myself. So when I went down there uh, out on the boat with her and some of her friends and mentors, I was blown away at how technical and challenging. I mean, cause I had an underwater camera housing and I, you know, I've swam my whole life com- competitively and 
feel like I'm a decent swimmer. And <laughs> I was holding my breath for maybe 30 seconds, <laughs> right? So I was diving down maybe 30 feet, 40 feet at the most. And then this panic starts to set in. Because right? you still got to get up to the surface yeah, at some point. And, and that's something that she taught me is the mammalian dive reflex, where okay. there is something in our bodies that are all, as mammals, that we have the ability to hold our breath for longer periods of time, but you have to trick your brain uh, your brain is telling you, you need oxygen, panic, go back, but you really don't. Uh, and so when she's saying mental, that's kind of what I learned. And so when I was watching them and I don't want to speak too much about this cause I don't know, but this is just me observing the, you know, I don't want to call it a sport, but you know, whatever, you know, the, the practice, right. And they always dive in pairs. So ideally one person's up on the surface while the other one goes down. And a lot of that has to do with if they shoot a fish, these sharks are coming in. And we were fortunate that day that there weren't any sharks. <laughs> it sounds dangerous. Yeah. Sharks so, were there. I just didn't tell you. <laughs> it wouldn't have bothered me. I was hoping we'd see some, but I wasn't going to say that out loud. So They stay in the, in the murk. Oh, yeah. You can see the shadows just like yeah. just lurking around. So why don't you just go a little <laughs> bit more into detail there? Because you've told me some crazy stories. And uh, I just, I have so much respect for, for spearfishing now because I experienced it and realized that I am not capable of doing it at this moment. I mean, I would have to train and teach myself and there's a lot of safety things and there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. And um, cause it is underwater hunting. Oh yeah, it is hundred percent. You have to, you have to track your prey. You have to anticipate his behavior. Different species have different behavior. You have to learn all of that. It's, it, it is purely hunting. It's just underwater and holding your breath while doing it. And they're also identifying fish species and size of fish underwater. Yep. So you can't just shoot anything, right? So that's a whole other so part of it. So there's rules and regulations depending on different parts of the world that you're in. There's rules and regulations and there's also, I read a lot of reports, scientific reports on fish population to make sure that what I'm catching is actually doing the right thing for the ecosystem and the environment. It's very selective. It's probably, it is the most selective way of consuming fish or well, seafood. I mean, it's way more selective than fishing for them because it's, there's a lot of luck involved in that. You don't really know what's going to be on the end of your line. True. And so if it's too small, you have to throw it back. Yes. Yeah. And with provisioning, you don't have to, to, to do that. So basically how, how it goes for people who don't know is you're on the surface, you're wearing fins that are, free diving fins are pretty long. Um, so maybe mine mines are about eighty five centimeters, so they're pretty long. That's I don't know how many inches. It's okay. It's, in, it's, in the UK, we work. No, they're yeah. probably two and a half feet, three yeah. feet long. Yeah, three three feet to a meter, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so they're they're really long, and then yeah. of course you're wearing a wetsuit. You have a knife in your belt. You have a mask and a snorkel. You're breathing through your snorkel, and what you want to do is that you want to relax you, you yourself. So you want you want to um, slow down your heartbeat. So you kind of want to put your body into sleep mode. So that way, when you're diving, you, you're just saving as much energy as you can. And so what you're he not was, burning oxygen. Yes. And once that was, you don't eat before you go for diving, by example. Oh. Because the digestive process is going to take too much oxygen yeah. out of you. And how he was, was explaining about the mammalian dive reflex, as soon as you emerge your face underwater, those transi transition are starting to, to happen in your body. So you, you automatically your heart is going to start slowing down and your blood is going to start shifting from extremities to vital organs. You, your body's getting ready to hold its breath. So we actually made to do that. Not at the extent of a seagull or other mammals actually have it way stronger than that. Like um, penguins, by example, really have it really strong. 
but you still have it. And there's ways to, after that, when you train, what you want to do is you want to trigger that even more. But back to the process, you're floating underwater and then you're just waiting for, um, for your body to be relaxed. And then you're going to take a deep, 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 deep breath and you're going to fill your lungs until it's uncomfortable. And then you're going to take a drop. And then you're just free diving. You're finning as slowly as you can because, again, you're trying to save your energy. And there's two types so it's of about efficiency. efficiency, being as efficient it's, as you it's can. It's about efficiency. And it's about not panicking mm-hmm. because you don't have hair. And again, your body, hair, sorry. French people would put H everywhere. <laughs> uh, and the whole process is about just making your body understand that you don't need oxygen. So you have to function without it. So there's two ways of spearfishing. You have reef spearfishing or you have blue water hunting. Reef spearfishing is what um, we did in Tampa. So you go down in a wreck, you go down to the bottom, you go down in a reef and you hunt. So you're hiding yourself and you wait for the fish to come and you, you check in holes and then, and then when somebody comes at its, what well, first of all, edible or big enough or not in reproduction season, then you shoot it. You're trying to aim for the brain. And then you grab your fish, you come to the surface, you knife it as fast as possible because it's actually not blood attracting sharks. It's the movement of a fish in the stress in the water. So it's those vibrations that attract so the shark. Sen- they can sense that. They can sense that from really far away. They cannot send blood, smell blood from two miles away. That's just that's completely bullshit. But as soon as they have their face into it, then they get excited. But it's actually the vibration. So this is why when you have a fish, you want to knife it as, as fast as possible. And so you, you make sure that it's dead. And then second of all, you're just going to make an incision at the top of his gills and you're going to bleed it straight away. It's just more respectful um, for the fish. And then that way you make sure that the meat is completely white and it's not stained by blood, which is what, gave, what gives the fishy taste to fish. Yeah, and because you're interested in how it tastes at the end of the day. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm only doing for that. <laughs> well, and then you're, and I was gonna say if you didn't already mention it that your partner's watching your back for sharks and stuff like that. Yes, too. so that's what your body is for. The biggest danger of spearfishing is actually not even shark; it's drowning. It's what we call shallow, shallow, shallow water blackout. <laughs> so when you're down, oppositely to scuba diving, your lungs get really, really small because they shrink with the water pressure. So on your way back. You don't need to make a stop because your lungs just take, go back to their normal... Yeah, there's no decompression stops. There's no decompression. Yeah. You don't have to do that. And um, as your lung expand and the percentage of oxygen you have in your lung becomes really small, and this is one of the dangers of passing out can occur. It happened to me once in the Bahamas. And it normally happens on your way up as your lungs are expanding. Exactly. So when that happened to me, I was in the Bahamas where you only allowed to use primitive gear. So it's literally a stick with an elastic attached to it. And I was hunting a grouper and I missed it and I started chasing it. And I was very deep. I was at about 85 feet, maybe like 25, 26 meters. A long way down. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when I realized that it was really deep. So I said, Oh, I probably have to go to the surface. And I started panicking. And this is when you panic, air just comes out. And I just, I was remember finning, and I just remember doing random movements with my arms because my brain was just completely shutting down and I was losing my motor control. And all I could do is fin, 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 fin and just hope that my buddy would watch me in the surface. And he was, luckily, because he actually lost his brother three years before two shallow water blackout. So I was really lucky to have somebody watching me because if he was not watching me, and this is why... 
picking your hunting partner and the water is very important because if you're diving with somebody who's more interested in catching a fish 200 meters away, when you're coming out from a dive without air and you're about to pass out, if he wasn't watching me, I would have died. So you need to dive with people that are so safe. you really have to trust somebody. You do have, you're trusting that person with your life. Spearfishing, you think that because only one person is pulling the trigger in a fish. Spearfishing is a team sport. Hmm, I've never, I didn't definitely know that. Definitely a team sport because you can get, like you mentioned earlier, you can get tangled on the line. Hmm. In the, the incidents that I've read like over the years, that's been, you know, how, that, there was one I think last year in New Zealand and someone had uh, speared a big fish and it, it, it just pulled him, it pulled him through a, a gap in some rocks and he just got jammed in there and couldn't get back out again. That's crazy. It's, I mean, spearfishing is the second most dangerous sport after base jumping. Second most dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Don't wow. tell that to Did my Did you know that company. before you went out? <laughs> Absolutely not. I, had, you do I know. had no idea. And then as I started to learn more about it, I was like, whoa, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And I don't want to skip over this, right? She said she was down at 85 feet. That's about half of what she's capable of. So what? You can go down to 170, 170 feet, which is how many meters that's, is that? That's that, insane. That's, I don't even train free diving. It's just by spending that's time over, in the water. That's over 50 meters, right? It's 50 meters. Yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I dive, or I have dived a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I have free dived a bit, but just playing. Um, but I've scuba dived a lot. And 50 meters is a long way down, because I know, because you've <laughs> got to do all the compression stops on the way back up. Yeah. So, because well, I'm, you know, when, I, when I've been down there, the big thing is if everything goes wrong and you have to bail out, I know it's a long way to the surface. And that's with oxygen on the bottom. Well, the worst part of that is that you're sinking. Yeah. <laughs> when you pass about 10 meters or 30 feet, you're sinking. Mm. So you don't have a choice to have a movement to put, a, to put yourself back to the surface. But that when you're hitting those depths, it's normally because you're doing freediving, which means that you have a rope in front of you. Okay. So an easier solution is also you can and pull yourself back pull up. Yourself back up. Mm. But it's, so it's, normally the deep stuff you're doing and there's a rope to the bottom, is there? Yes, which okay. I rarely do because, again, I pure freediving is not really my thing. I just like getting food. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the people you talk to on your podcast, right, a lot of the discussions we have in Modern Huntsman is around ethical hunting and sustainable food sourcing and conservation and all that stuff. So I want to shift into that because I know that she has a lot of experience and, and interesting points there. Um, but I think maybe you could start with – being that, I think you and I would agree that this is a very ethical way to selectively hunt fish. Yeah, it couldn't be more selective. Especially based on the input of fish and wildlife departments, um, you know, ocean conservation organizations that talk about the status of different fisheries and all that kind of stuff. But maybe talk about the same struggle, because we have this struggle, right, with trying to show ethical hunting versus what the public's opinion of hunting is. And I know that you have a lot of trouble and you have a lot of conflict even from within the fishing industry. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that, about how... Yeah, because yeah, I don't think I don't think that there's... Uh, if For people who don't know much about it, I think they assume that people who go spearfish are going, they're basically doing what they like yes. under there. And well, I, I may offend a few people with that's my okay. opinion we offend people on the all matter. The time. But <laughs> so it's, I, I, I do, I get, I get... It's not easy for me to find brands to work with or stuff like that because of the act of, of, of killing, which for me is completely ridiculous when you consider the fact that most of those people actually eat fish. And when somebody actually 
just give me a hard time on the fact that I'm killing fish, unless they're vegan, that I can destroy your arguments with your, argue, your arguments within a minute. That's not. That's, if you consume fish or meat, there's no way you can be against fishing. It's just there's just no way. It doesn't make sense whatsoever. What I do not understand is the fact that catch and release is a practice that is socially very accepted. At the moment. Opposed to spearfishing. But yeah. when you really think about it, it's about enjoying yourself, dragging a creature with a hook in his mouth just for fun and for a photo. How is that more accepted than wanting to have fish fillet for dinner? Yeah, and we, I've, I've brought this up before at home because there's a lot of catch and release. And, you know, I, I fish with a rod and line as well. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult question that uh, people in the fishing community, the traditional fishing community, need to really tackle. Uh, because, like you say, why are you doing it? You're only doing it for your own pleasure. Uh, this, the, the, the caveat to that is that, uh, and this goes to the unselective, the more unselective nature of fishing, is very often you catch things that you don't intend to, which are too small to keep. True. And so, you know, they're putting them back because I'm it not, would be I'm silly to keep. I'm not against it. I'm just saying that it's not normal that spearfishing is getting all this heat when all we're doing is catching it on dinner when catch and release is largely socially accepted. It just does not make so sense. So where's the heat coming from? Because I, I mean, I don't see it because spearfishing isn't big uh, in the UK. So I don't, you know, I don't see anyone who's getting heat for spearfishing. So where where is it? Where is it coming from? What sort of parts of uh, society is? I the think heat it's. From? I think it's just a generalized. It's, it's just the fact that food sourcing is still very very taboo in our society. And when you think about every ocean conservation NGO or, or, or companies or whatever doing everything to save the ocean, all they talk about is freaking straws and plastic bags. It is a huge problem. It's, 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 I see it every day in the ocean. I see balloons, I see cigarette butts, I see all of that crap in the ocean. And it's important to talk about it. But none of them wants or dares to talk about fishing. Like commercial fishing, like yeah. Like commercial fishing. Mm, yeah. You, you, you're literally calling yourself an ocean conservation um, a company or, or whatever, organization, and you refuse to talk about the thing that is depleting the ocean and polluting the ocean more than anything else. 46% of the plastic in the ocean are fishnets. It's really... It's... it's wow. you, people have to talk about it, and... Luckily, it's starting to shift a little bit, but it's not normal that huge organization like, I don't know, like Sea Legacy or Greenpeace or all they talk about is f small, small things that at the end of the day is not going to make enough of a difference. It starts in our homes. It's on the decisions that we make as consumers. It's, I, I heard uh, or read something recently that it's uh, fish in the ocean is the last wild resource that we extract commercially. I don't think there's any other wild resource that we extract commercially. And, and I was going to say at that scale, if you are, weren't already going to go into the bycatch, and you know, because I think a lot of people who listen, this is what what why I think what she does is really important is that she doesn't just bring these things up and challenge people. That she's offering information and solutions, so people who want to do the right thing or support support. I mean, I know that the word sustainable is very complex. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. That's the problem. It's it's been largely used 
by people who are doing massive greenwashing that pretend that their products is sustainable when it's actually not. And also, most organizations, when you think about seafood guides, by example, they say, oh, this fish is sustainable to eat because they look at the whole population of fish. Did they look at the fish? Globally. Yeah, globally. Mm -hmm. But it's way more complicated than that. And even though we really like to think about sustainability only on the on the environment perspective, there's a very big social and economic side to that. Because what's happening right now in a lot of countries is that, um, so you may eat, let's say, I don't know, uh, a mackerel or tuna. Yeah. Everybody's tuna. And I stopped eating tuna. That's, yeah. that's good. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but tuna is on the shelf of every shop at home. Yeah. around the world probably. well if, if you if you really want to make a shortly of difference just stop eating salmon and tuna um yeah don't get byron started on salmon <laughs> uh yeah yeah we, we can go into that later <laughs> <laughs> so basically it's not because one fish is caught in a sustainable way um on, on because of uncertain standards doesn't mean that it's actually really sustainable Trina's actually one of a very good example because I went to visit the fisheries and the Marshall Islands and it's I, I spent a few days on, on, on commercial fishing boats and it was it was very special to say the least. First of all, frozen it looks gross. <laughs> I would never eat that. But then you know they catch it in the Pacific and then they ship it overseas to get fillets and process. And then they put it in a can in the third country, and then they sell it in the fourth. The carbon footprint is can be outrageous in a fish. And also, they are. If you want an example of um, of a social sustainability problem, is that bigger company get a lot of quotas when it comes to commercial fishing. So then you have the small little guys who are just trying to make like meat hand in the end of the month. They have quotas for barely anything, and they can't they can't even survive on that. There's a lot of aspects of sustainability that people just fail to either talk about or mention or just consider. So with regard to um, utilizing fish in our oceans as a resource, how do we do that? Because tomorrow, if we, if we say, okay, you're not using that resource anymore, it, it, well, it would be impossible to say that because so much of the planet relies on that as a protein intake. I mean, I know, for example, the entire catch out of Namibia until last year was going to the DRC, the entire ocean catch. And that is where most of their protein comes from because it can't come. So what do we, what do, how, how do we address that when obviously uh, for humans, it's vital at the moment for survival the without problem, screwing our oceans at the same time? The problem is not even the population because there is enough fish for us to fish our oceans in a, in a sustainable, regenerative way. And it's we, we can do that. The problem does not lay in the fact that we're too many people. It lays in the fact that there's so much greed in the fishing industry because some fish worth so much money that this is why overfishing is happening. We're thinking about that about two-thirds of the fish that are being fished every year are wasted. We can uh, feed... As bycatch, or even in our household, because we just throw everything away, mm-hmm. and it's it's we can feed everybody. We can actually have sustainable commercial fisheries, and we can have very rightly done agriculture, so farming. 
that this is all possible. It's just nobody, pardon my French, but nobody gives a shit to actually do it the right way. All they want to do is money. And this is where the problem is. The, the commercial aspect comes first in so many instances. And the, the perfect example that everyone will be familiar with at home and increasingly in North America is, is the salmon farming example. Yes. With, with the, the knock-on effects to the, the environment that surrounds those salmon farms. And the only reason that's... And like you're just suggesting there, that, those, that can be done many times better with almost zero negative effect on the environment. Um, but it's not. Well, it, it, it can be if it's done on land. Yeah. If it's done on land so, in closed containment. Yeah. There's, I'm not talking about the animal welfare of the fish, but I'm talking about yeah. the, the impact on the wild environment can be completely brought down to zero because uh, but, there's but it's um, not done no it's, it's, not, it's not done, done because all. money speaks first uh well i was going to say too you know with you've talked about that being the number one traded commodity in the world and something with that many zeros Fish. Yeah, yeah yeah yes exactly and that's hard to move something that has that many zeros yeah. behind it or dollar <laughs> signs or whatever it is you know and i think that that's something i've learned with you know she does a lot of instagram stories about well for instance, when she says greenwashing, right? Sunscreen, right? Okay. Reef safe, right? Means that, so from what I've learned, you correct me if I'm wrong, that if it has more than two ingredients in it, it's it's toxic. Normally one. One, one. Normally okay. it has one. Maybe it has two. Yeah. So those are considered reef safe, right? In terms of it's not poisonous to the, the, the coral reefs and the fish. And then people have started using the term reef friendly, which okay. isn't. It's safe. not reef safe. It's just so not as bad. That's capitalizing <laughs> on the fact that consumers are wanting to make the right decision. And these companies are like, well, if we pretend like this is that, then maybe we can get their money too. It's so bad, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And so... It's outrageous because then it's just people think that they're doing something with a clear conscience when... Because people are, generally speaking, are good. And so they're trying to... Increasingly, the, the average member of the public is trying to make good choices. I mean, I think that with, with, you know, with social media, we get feed a lot of information, a lot, a lot of it. Some of it is good. Some of it is really bad. But it's it's really hard as a normal consumer to know about anything. I've been reading about this, the commercial fishing industry for three years, and I'm still learning everything every time I read a new paper. It's so com everything is so complex. And then again, you have you have horrible people that are putting doing stuff like that, like putting label and said it's reef safe or reef friendly just because they want to sell a product when they actually don't care at all about what's what if it makes a difference or not. And it's it's just it's hard. It's really hard for consumers and what we being the right Yes, and mm -hmm. we've been asked so many things like change your habits, stop using this, stop using that. So it's 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 overwhelming because we all grew up in a certain way. I mean we're all the same age. Well ish <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes, you're the uh, old man. I'm the old club. man, not just at the table, but in the company. Yeah. And um, it's you know we grew up not thinking about anything. We grew up not knowing that our toys were or toys were being made by plastic and yeah, by. We were far less. Well, I mean, I was far less aware when I was. By younger. child labor, and you know, we didn't know that our clothes. There was an issue with you know big companies making so many clothes and create pollution. And we all reach out our 20s and all of a sudden we're being told that everything we ever ate, played with, wore, every habit we ever had. damaging the planet. Sorry, but <laughs> everything you've ever been doing in your life is wrong and you have to change completely. And it's, it's hard for people. It's even harder for adults who are now in their 40s and their 40s and their 50s. It's, you know, we're still at the limit of people who can make 
big differences in our life. But when you think about the fact that we actually all grew up doing everything that was really bad, it's not easy to tell people that everything they ever done in their life is bad. <laughs> Mm. I, 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 before we go on, unless you, it's something that's pressing, I want to just expand on the sun cream thing because <laughs> a lot of people that's coming into winter at home probably booking their summer holidays for next year thinking, I'm going to be putting sun cream on before I go and get in the water. What's the problem with it? Just explain, expand on that a little bit. Okay, so there's eight chemicals that are detrimental for the reef. So it's creating coral bleaching. Okay. So it's just but that's not the, the only reason completely. for coral bleaching though. It's not I, the only a lot, reason. A lot of people will have heard of coral bleaching. It's not the only reason. It's a, it's a, it's a factor. Okay. And then again, you know, it's like there's a lot of stuff and and chemicals in the ocean that, you know, we have to just try to reduce that as much as possible. Of course, I agree that a charcoal factory is probably way worse than, you know, Stephen wearing sunscreen in Barbados. But it's still like it, it has to be a, a global effort. So if you want to buy a sunscreen that is good, it has to be either zinc or uh, titanium dioxide. And that's it. Only one of those two ingredients, or maybe the two, as active ingredients. If there's more than that, I mean, it's bad for And it reef. should say reef safe on it. That doesn't really matter. It doesn't. You need to actually look at the ingredients. Just look. Mm -hmm. The only okay. thing that matters yeah. is the ingredient. Yeah. And I mean, beyond what it does for the ocean, it's also what it does to our skin, right? <laughs> In terms of natural products and things yes. like that. So I'm going to go and look at the sun cream. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I've, I've been... I have no idea what's in that. I've been <laughs> trying bad. to do that, you know? Um but yeah, it's interesting. And then before we move too much on in terms of, we don't need to dive too much deeper into the sustainable word, but for people who do eat fish, I wanted you to talk a little bit about what they can do or what to look for or how to support it and make the right decisions. So there's, there's two things, but the biggest thing that you can do as a fish consumer is to vary your diet. It's just, it's the biggest thing that you can do. So eat less fish. Or different types or of different fish. Or different types of fish. Type of fish. I mean, I don't think you should be eating fish more than twice a week anyways. Not if you're buying it from commercial fish. Unless you have your little boat and eat as much as you want. But if 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 you are part of the, 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 of the system of the commercial fisheries, you shouldn't be eating um, normally seafood more than twice a week. But there are very good options that are actually really cheap. Mussels. Mussels cost nothing. And it takes five minutes to prepare, and it tastes really good. And it's a very sustainable thing. Yeah, because they can grow them commercially. They can grow them commercially, yeah. and it cleans the water. It filters the water. It's fantastic. Same with oysters, clams. Um, there's a bunch of fish, too, that again, it's really complex. It's, it's really complicated. So food guides do provide also um, some kind of, of, of guidance when it comes to what to buy sustainably. But just bear in mind that it's only ecological and it does not take into consideration the fact that some fisheries are just going bankrupt and can't even survive and villages don't have access to to food because the quota is being given to two big boats while tiny little fishermen are just struggling to survive. Well, and traceability too, right? Didn't you say there's ways to verify where those fish came from that they were done correctly? Yes. And this is also because it's one of the, the because it's the commodity which is the most traded in the world, there's a lot of seafood fraud happening. What's saying it's coming from a certain location and it's actually coming from That's somewhere one else. of them. Or they're going to sell, you know, oh, well, we have grouper sandwich for, for lunch at a restaurant. And I'm like, this is not grouper for sure. Hmm. And it happens to me a lot. And actually, the MSC estimated that more than 30% of seafood is wrongly labeled. 30%. Deliberately. Imagine if 30% of your meat at a grocery store 
was not what you think you buy. Yeah, well, people will remember a few years. Do you remember, remember the horse, remember the horse handle? Yeah. That That's is basically what was happening. So why are they doing that? Is it because they are getting a higher value for fish that it costs less I or mean, are more abundant? I, 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 do, I, I really don't want to sound condescending towards Asian countries, but there's a lot of belief that, you know, a certain stuff are going to have an effect on... Or even as a food stuff. Oh, a lot of it. There's mm. a lot of food stuff that is supposed to... Either also is very luxurious and there's a spiritual side to, to certain food too. I mean, in Quebec, we have one of the best lobster in the world, yet it's being sold at Maine Lobster even though it's not for Maine whatsoever. It's Canadian lobster. That's just one of them. It's not. This one is not that bad, but it's just way worse than that. It's just nobody seems to think it's scandalous when it's fish. People just, well, fish is fish. Yeah, I know that there was a, there was a couple of chefs in the UK that uh, on this basis that there are certain species of fish that as a society we want to eat more of, like cod. People always want to buy cod in the UK. There's a lot of other fish species, which is very similar to cod and even tastes kind of similar. Some of them arguably taste better, but we don't buy them because we've got this psyche of it's cod that we want to buy. And there, they had a campaign to try and uh, get the public to eat a greater variety of fish species because then you're not having uh, this huge pressure on a single species. So I think that goes to what you were saying in terms of variety. Yes, exactly. I mean, most people... Don't be afraid to try something new because <laughs> most fish taste awesome. People eat cod, they eat bass, they eat salmon, tuna, and the first, first one is... Uh, Hel- halibut? Maybe. Yeah, halibut. Oh, it's like the most popular. Yeah. Yes, but people only, literally only eat that. And mm. it's, it's just so many... All my favorite fish are fish I've never heard of before. And it's not because... And it's a good way to... Again, like if you know, if, if it's just if we wanted to do the right thing, it actually would be easy. Tilapia is a very sustainable fish to farm yep. in America. Yeah, I've but why tilapia. nobody talks about that? It's tilapia is really not that bad. It's not a. It's I like it. Doesn't taste if you doing fry in a pan or even bake. If you put it next to cod, it's pretty much it's very similar. To a lot of people, anyways, it probably tastes, a lot of people probably couldn't tell. The they difference probably couldn't tell the difference anyway. So why nobody talks about it? why 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 don't we have more tilapia farms that are sustainable? Why nobody why people keeps buying this horrible farm salmon instead? Is the 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 care and attention to the species that you're um, pursuing f- uh, when you're spearfishing is that? across the board as a, as a community? Is the spearfishing community very conscious of that or is that more is that harder to find? It's like the hunting community, I would say. Most people are, you know, they take conservation very seriously. We take fishing laws very seriously, like such things as seasons and size and stuff like that. We're, 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 very, we're very good when it comes to that. But again, like in hunting, you know, there's, there's always going to be people there's, 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 it's yeah. everywhere and I'm yeah. just doing the wrong thing. And I, I met her mentor in Florida when I was down there shooting the story. And that was one of the things that really impressed me that she, about GR was that, you know, you do see a lot of people who are, they're going out there trying to kill the biggest fish they can. And uh, she would never say this, but she has five world records. But most people don't know that because she doesn't, that's not what it's about. Because GR said, it's about going out, um, being safe. Uh, getting fish in the boat and everyone coming back alive. I don't have real records. I didn't submit them. 
Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> what would have been yeah. registered world records? You know, I think that's cool that, you know, at the end of the day, she was taught by somebody because who... Because it's not important to you. It was about... It's not, it's, it's not important to me. It's just... It probably would help with my marketing. I just don't want to promote spearfishing as something which is driven by catching the biggest fish. You don't want to promote it as something that's trophy hunting. Exactly. Even though, I mean, I shot a marlin. I shot a 400 pounds of marlin. Which is crazy. And it was... Marlins are people just get very attached and emotional because it's big, and but it's, a it's charismatic it's, fish. It actually it grows really fast. It's more sustainable to catch a marlin than it is to catch a grouper. But grouper is very socially accepted to to go hunt for. Are they much slower growing? They slow very yeah, and also they reproduce very late, and it's not it's not an ideal fish to eat. But it takes it takes fantastic. A marlin can reach like. A very, very big size very quickly and only in two, three years. Oh, wow. And then when I got my marlin, what I did is I was in Mexico. I just shared a fish with Mexican villages around and I just shared that. And I flew back with, I think, 40 pounds of flesh. And I went to a grocery store in Florida and I put on my Instagram. I said, I have free fish. If somebody wants to try something different. And I just gave away 40 pounds of fish to strangers that came pick it up. It's, there's ways to eat fish and... Again, to vary and educate people. It's just some people choose to have a photo instead because their penis is very small. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take a picture of the fish? Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> just to brag to my friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think too that one of the things that, and if, if you weren't already going to go into this, you know, you've been doing TED Talks. You were just at uh, a, a dive conference in the Philippines, and we were actually some of my editors were helping weigh in on the uh, on her speech because initially they said we don't want you to talk about spearfishing, we don't want you to talk about sourcing fish, and she pushed back. This is a, a TED talk. No, this was no. at a dive. This conference. was dive. It was a dive yeah. conference. I was supposed to talk at a conference in Singapore last year. And a month before, they said, well, actually, we decided to uninvite you. I was like, what? And when I asked for an explanation, they said, well, we just don't want, you know, like there's a lot of ocean conservation people present, and we just don't want you to get booed off the stage. I'm like, well, it's pretty hypocritical to not to want to talk about food sourcing if you care about ocean conservation. But I got invited this year, so let's see. <laughs> oh, you haven't been yet? It's the same conference, but a different year. Yes. And okay. now they told me that they want to invite me this year. So let's okay. see. Apparently, the management changed or something. But it's good. It's good that people finally want to agree. Because if you look the other way and want to be oblivious to one of the biggest threats to the ocean, you're part of the problem. You're not helping. It's not because you want to talk only about straws up turtles' nose that it makes you a better person. You know, it's you have to tackle everything and by just being blind and oblivious to it you're definitely part of the problem because this is what big companies and big fisheries doing the wrong thing that's exactly what they want us to do and it suits more people it suits more people because we're eating cheap sushi on the tuesday night and the fisheries are catching tuna that are tiny and they haven't bred yet and then they're making a shit pile of money everybody's happy at the end unless you have some people that start speaking up yeah it's um I don't think there's ever been more focus on issues in the ocean. But, like you say, if we're not focusing on one of the biggest problems, which is over-extraction or 
then you know, we're probably going to be fighting a losing battle if we care about what's in the ocean. Exactly. That's, you know, like, it's every, literally everybody talked about straws and plastic in the ocean, which is a really big issue, but not a single one talked about fishing. I was the only one that spoke about fishing. I wonder why. And they all eat fish. They all eat fish. I started my conference by asking how many people were eating fish, and it was the majority of people. I hope that it's not something that is deliberate. You know, because if this was, if this was, if if this conversation was about salmon in the UK, I would be very tempted to to suggest that there is money pushing that conversation so that it's not a focus point, Um, or it's just that people have become so focused on these issues which they feel like they can make a difference on because you as a, as a person sitting in your house anywhere in the world can make the, a very easy decision not to use plastic straws anymore or to make sure you're not uh, you know, washing yourself with microbeads. It's, like it's an easy thing that you can do like that overnight. Yes. But changing commercial fisheries around the world seems like something that's just so far, even though, as we've discussed, it can be through your own buying decisions, but it seems like such a far reach of uh, making any kind of impact that's going to be positive. But don't get me wrong. Like most fisheries, most commercial fisheries in the world are very, very well managed. The United States is an example of the coast of the United States is very fishy and very healthy. They take a very, very, very good care of it. There's a lot of scientists behind it and they take under consideration a lot of things and it's they're doing a good job. There's just some slips here and there which makes the biggest impact. Well, there's also a shed load of international water. So when I was, exactly, when I was in the Marshall Islands, the guy was talking about illegal vessels that were coming into the Pacific and just snagged tunas. So, of course, with my preconceived ideas, it was like, who is it? China? It's like, is it Japan? And it was like, no, it's the US, it's Canada, it's Spain, it's Portugal, it's freaking everybody. Really? It's not, it's, you know, like, again, the US manages kills very well, but then they're going illegally catch tuna in the Pacific and poor country. Hey. <laughs> yeah, and I think, Byron, when you ask why, I mean, I think it's part of the same debate we have all the time about having discussion. It's the reason my my mother from Texas is like, wow, y'all are just diving headfirst into controversy <laughs> because it's a hard conversation. Yeah. And it's it's not one that somebody with a corporate upstanding or, you know, these big NGOs that have a ton of members, right? If, if a giant ocean conservation organization starts talking about that, if they have a million members, what percentage of those members are going to start freaking out and being really loud online, even though they're not educated, they're going to start bashing people and making nasty comments and that. So, I mean, it's, it's a hard conversation and she's being brave to talk about it on a stage in a room full of people that don't want to talk about it. But I think that's making a difference. And, and I think that's, you know, perfect example. She's been invited back because somebody has got to do it. And I think eventually, um, I mean, we were talking about this the other day. I perfect example. I took my dad over to Tanzania one time and he used to be the vice president of Pepsi. Well, we saw Coke bottles everywhere by Lake Natron, right? Cause there's a road that goes between Manyara and Lake Natron and you know, in most of these Maasai and African villagers, like they just don't, you know, they don't know better. they're used to throwing their produce out or whatever it's, it's decom- uh, decomposes and things like that. Well, 
my dad saw that and he's like, that's a really bad PR problem for Coke. And he's like, rather than trying to shame people into picking their own trash up, he's like, you should go to Coke and say, hey, you've got a problem on your hands. Why don't you use your corporate money to, you know, in, in, like instill a program that gives either molasses or cattle credit or money in return for handing back, in your for handing back the bottles. Mm-hmm. So then now the, the Maasai and the villages in Lake Natron, you know, Maasai land area are now have incentive to pick this up. That whole process is documented. Everybody wins, right? So in situations like this, where these just big organizations and, and not that I want to get into cruise ships, but that sort of thing, right? <laughs> where if you could get the corporations involved in curtailing and ideally sequestering some of that versus all of us feeling worse about the decisions we make because we all grew up in a capitalist society or consumer society. Um, I think that is a way, it seems like a way to take on those larger issues and start to make a difference. But I think, I think lobbyists is also one of the biggest problem. I think yeah. hunting, you have the same, the exact same problems. There's mm-hmm. people out there. We have, that have contradictory, um, uh, interest. And then, you know, when it comes to, Proving their point or publicly defending their position, hunters that is on land or underwater were a very small community that can be very easily crushed by very big people. And I'm not going to get into cruise ships because that's going to get me very mad. I kind of want to know because I, <laughs> I wasn't sure where that comment was going. But when as, an exa- it. as an example, you know, I spear fish for my own food, I never buy seafood. Um, Unless it's like clams and shit, but anyways. And I think it was Caribbean, Royal Caribbean. I think it was them. I was supposed to go work for them years ago when I first got into uh, Miami and I was trying to get any work. So they also backed up by WWF. And then I think it was two weeks before the shoot, they sent me an email and they said... Well, we're sorry, but we decided that we don't want to work with you because you're a red flag marketing-wise when it comes to ocean conservation. I'm like, that coming from a cruise ship? <laughs> what? <laughs> so it's, you know, it's like those people that are doing the worst things just have a lot of people to back them up, and that's what makes the biggest difference. I sometimes wonder, uh, it, it's hard to know where to turn to make the right decisions. And to to actually like bring people with you, because you know I've become, I've come to an increasing realization that uh, you know the only way that we can move forward is to try and break down those barriers so that you can actually have a discussion. Because obviously it's very difficult if you don't even get a seat at the table, like you get uninvited to the conference. But at the point where you can actually get through the door, so that you can actually ha- you can have a discussion with people, is when but you it can starts start to with move the forward. public. That's the thing. You know, those companies don't want to talk about it. Because they're scared that the average person is going to go crazy and get super emotional. And this is what the public has to change. This is what, you know, we need to be more educated. We need to read into it. And we need to stop staying in a little cocoon of comfort and not wanting to discuss stuff that bothers us. Because, again, this is make you part of the problem. And it's, I got people being like, you're such a horrible person. I can't believe you're enjoying killing a fish you're terrible you're gonna burn in hell and i'm like well do you eat fish well yeah and you're like you just how like just think just use your brain for one second just like put your emotions aside and try to understand 
exactly what's behind it. And sadly, most people won't do that. With a, a mind about uh, sort of building community support, just going back to the, the catch and release question, because this comes up a lot at home. Uh, and and the, the angling community, like the traditional angling, like aside from from spearfishing, I would suggest is probably much larger than spearfishing. Yes. Um, is there discussions that you've had between uh, or, or people within the spearfishing community had with the angling community regard catch and release? Because global, globally, it's a, like you said, it's a, it's a socially acceptable practice. There's also a sense of superiority when it comes to that. They kind of have this, not everybody, but I saw a lot of almost like God complex when it's coming to, well, I release my catch while well, you killing it. And so it's. Do you, a lot do, you, of do you not think that it's a little bit both ways, though? Because I mean, I I understand what you're saying about catch and release, and I have there's some very hard discussions that need to be had around the world with regard to it uh, and why we do it. I the only way that I can justify it um, is that it gives people a vested interest in it. So if we look at like a river system for Atlantic True. salmon, it gives people a vested interest in that river system to protect those fish. So if you turn around tomorrow and say, okay, there's no fishing allowed anymore because we're not going to catch and release and we don't have enough fish stocks for you to kill them anymore because most most Atlantic salmon in the UK are caught and released now. Yeah. Then overnight, everybody stops fishing. The rivers aren't cleared. There's no money coming into the fisheries board. So there's no fisheries trusts um, actually monitoring the rivers anymore. And the whole system breaks down. The, the person walking their dog along the river in the morning loves the river would love, you know, enjoys watching a salmon jump out the uh, out the river when the, when they're running, but isn't going to put his hand in his pocket and fund anything. Yeah. So, although I, it still sits quite uncomfortably with me, this notion of only pursuing a fish to catch it, get your own enjoyment, and put it back. That's how I can justify it. Now, sadly, when I ask many people who are very pro catch and release. How do you justify it? They actually don't have an answer nine times out of ten. I've come up with an answer for them because I have to have discussions around tables like this. So do you think there's not a little bit both ways? It's maybe them being a bit off, saying, well, look what a good person I am, I'm catching it. But do you think maybe from the spearfishing community it's also viewing it in a poor light without not taking into consideration what like what I've just said? I, I mean, I don't... It seems quite confrontational and maybe doesn't need to be. I don't think it is that much. I mean... I mean, what from my experience, what I feel is that we're the only one getting all the heat. And I'm only telling that to somebody who does cash and release if they're giving me giving a hard shit. time for, for what I'm doing. But it's not. If you enjoy doing cash and release, have fun. Who am I to judge what you're doing with your free time? But, of course, if, if, if you talk about it, like you just said, there's only one reason to go cash and release. It's because you like it. Yeah, I mean, the people are that's doing it. it because they enjoy it. That's it. There's, there's no reason. It's just because you like it. If you, you're not doing it for the good of the fish, but then... If you care so much about a fish population, then do something else. <laughs> well, no, but that's, this goes to what I've just said. Though. If they did shut it down, I think it would be worse for the population. So well, this is like this is a little bit like the moral exception yeah, with yeah. somebody who goes and is a trophy hunter. Right. And so you can take moral exception to their motives to go and want to do it. But if you look at the, the overall uh, consequences and positive impacts of that activity as a management principle you can justify it on that basis without looking at the individual person's motive for doing it. Yeah. Uh, so certainly like in, in, in our river systems, there would just be no one on them. 
and it would definitely be worse for the fish. Yes, okay, the, the Why downs, would it be worse on a fish? Because there'd be no money going to the river systems. So like there'll be no one to clear oh, there'll be no I one see. to clear the, the streams for the salmon to, to run up. There'll be nobody actually monitoring it. So no one will know if this year twelve thousand fish went up or eight thousand fish and do we need to do something? Is it because there's silt uh, that's covered one of the major spawning reds? Yeah. You know, we won't know that because all of the money that goes into buying your permits is what funds the fisheries trusts. So if you can't catch and release, no one would fish because you're not allowed to kill in most of the rivers now. So there is there is an upside to it. But I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Like, I, I agree with the sentiments. I have, but I, have I just have to try and justify and it if it makes sense. The on only an catch and release that I'm basis. against for is probably marlins are very big pelagics yeah i've often wondered about that what is the uh, what i was going to say uh, with regard to the catch release for for salmon is i i know that they're not all surviving but that's almost the, that's the trade-off behind it, it, it's still a net gain for the investment in what is it with yeah. big fish what is the survival rate of that do you know because i've always thought to myself that it must be really low the more, the, the more, for like marlin. the mortality rate is 70 percent that's so actually I, I had a fight and 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 Cape Verde with a fisherman who was doing catching a laser of myelin. And he just literally called me all the names in the book because I said that if I saw a myelin, I would what I would like to harvest one in my life. I'm not gonna have two, I'm gonna have only one. But it's I was like he was he literally was telling me that I was the worst person and and and, and or because he wouldn't kill it, but they would release them. Yes, but I said, how many of the marlins in your life do you think died from being reeled in for so many hours? Some of those fights are long. And they do that all year long. So I'm like, okay, let's say to be conservative, maybe five of them died. Did you eat any of them? No. So why would I be the bad guy? Because I'm harvesting one and I'm actually eating it. I wonder if, is there, um, and this same question goes for spearfishing, is there any kind of permitting system that allows people to help fund conservation either through big game fishing from Ireland where they're catch and releasing or actually spearfishing? We're not enough to actually make a difference. In so, Canada... So it's, it's, it's a free activity, is it? Um, or do you have to no, pay you have, a There's a permit? license in Florida. Okay. And in Canada too. Canada is the same, if you want line fishing or spearfishing, it's the same license. Okay. Same price, exact same license, doesn't discriminate where, against Where, where does the money go? To the government? I am not sure. You know, I just wonder whether, uh, a little bit like the on the Marlin fishing side, I wonder whether they're putting so much money into protected areas that, you know, the loss of a few fish is, you know, the, the cost of doing business, if you like, for the greater good. But I, I don't know if that's the answer. I'm just yeah. putting, putting that out there. I don't know if that's a, a thing or not. A few years ago, I was on a boat with a guy in Ontario. In Canada, and the guy said, "Ah, oh, so that spearfishing thing you do is cheating." I said, "What do you mean? It's cheating?" And he said, "Well, yeah, you can see the fish, so it's cheating. It's not a sport." The guy was on a camping chair drinking Budweiser, fishing for trout. So I'm like, "Why don't you try it? <laughs> 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 then let me know if it's a sport or not. Water is like 60." <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that kind of attitude really helps anyone. But it's it's actually a general opinion, and then and, and the anglers community that we're cheaters because we can we can see the fish, and 
Quebec is in the process of trying to ban spearfishing completely in all the lakes and all the rivers, not because we have an impact. We're probably 50 in the entire province, which is gigantic. It's seven times the size of France. It's We don't make much of a difference. But then when they made a meeting about it with the, with the government, the Anglers Association were like, well, you cheaters, you can't see the fish, and they can't see the size too. So we just have to ban it completely. And the mainstream was like, okay. So it's based on nothing. It's based on it's based absolutely on emotion. nothing. Well, also, there was an idiot that did um interview in a newspaper, and he said, oh, it's impossible to tell the size of the fish underwater, so we just shoot pretty much anything. So this idiot just ruined it for everybody else. <laughs> and it's for me, it's so frustrating when you hear stories like that, because there is absolutely no reason why spearfishing community and the angling community and the angling community and the hunting community, there are there is so much common ground between what we're trying to achieve that now you've got a situation where they won't talk to one another. Yeah. Because they've fallen out over something like this. But this and is... And it's not based on any kind of science or reason. But sadly, this is one of the biggest problems with food sourcing in society these days. Because when you... We're basically divided in four categories. So you have the vegans, you have the people who hunt their own food, you have the consumers who consume fish and and seafood and want to know about where it's from and they want to make the right decisions. And you have the people who eat fish and meat and don't give a shit about anything. So this are the four the society is divided between those four categories. And weirdly enough, the two people fighting are the hunters and the vegans. And everybody seems to be against us. Even though when you think about and you when you, you when you put those four categories next to each other, the problem is not us. It's definitely not us, but yes, we're the we're the yeah. we're just everybody's. Um, how do you call it in English? Scapegoat. Yeah, scapegoat. We're everybody's scapegoat. That's, but it's just not normal. We have the same interests as the vegans too. We want conservation. We want nature to be preserved. We want the planet to be treated in the right way. We have the same objective. We want the same thing. We have the same values. We just choose to eat meat and seafood, and then they don't. I think there's an increasing amount of uh, uh, the, the vegan community who are who accept that, though. I mean, ju even just judging by the conversations that have been had, you know, through modern huntsmen. Yeah. Okay, I might still cho choose to eat that way, but if your decision is to eat meat or eat fish, right. and you're going about it in that manner, that is, you know, sustainable and wild and low impact in terms of the environment, then I'm all for it. Yeah. It's, I think the common thread there is a mindfulness and respect towards the way you're living, your, your lifestyle, particularly about food sourcing and, uh, you know, being a part of the environment. And I think that that's, Jess mentioned it, but I think she's mentioned it as well. Uh, that's one of the more powerful things I've learned about spearfishing is that that forces you to be a part of the food chain and the ecosystem. Because now you, I mean, you told me it's like you, you go underwater and the, the smallest fish is still way faster than you. Yeah. And you lose all, all of our advantages of humans, we lose when you go underwater, right? And so I think that's what's really cool about that to me is that I've learned is that you're now forced to, to humble yourself, especially in the presence of sharks or something like a 400 pound marlin, right? You're having to be very respectful of nature and, you know, and, and go about it the, the right way with respect. Hmm. So, I mean, it's very clear to me um, from the conversation we've had in this podcast and then over the last few days and what I, I know through reading the stuff that you post that 
you know, your uh, you know, your focus is you know most definitely on educating people and allowing them to uh, allowing them into your world and uh, putting information forward in a way that can be consumed in terms of uh, your impact and, and responsibility. Is there is that a sort of a, a move within the spear fishing community that is, is following suit? Much like uh, I can ask the same question, you know, within the hunting community, you know, modern huntsman has been you know, sort of a driving force in that in the last two years, but there are still plenty of people who don't. They it's lip service, you know, lip service for uh, being concerned about. The marine environment, environment, or lip service about being involved in, uh, uh, being concerned about the, the conservation of, you know, whatever species it is that's a quarry, quarry species. Are you seeing more of the spearfishing community sort of coming with and actually being genuinely concerned with that now? Because I think we're seeing it, you know, in the hunting community on land. I think so. I think it's it's a growing topic of discussion around the world, also because it's. Right now, it's a trend to eat well and know where your food is from and things like that. So, we're definitely heading the wrong way, or the right way. Sorry, <laughs> we're definitely heading the right Freudian way. Slip. <laughs> but we just have to, you know, we have to keep pushing and and keep going. And some people that has big platforms and have access to a lot of people, I think that we should definitely use those platforms to not share opinions or emotions, but rather facts in and data and scientific researches and actually real information because right now we're getting fed so many opinions and and emotions by people and people are just following it because it's logical or because it makes sense and there's nothing more I think detrimental to to the planet right now it's just all the false information going around. Tyler, can you give us a little? I mean, you've gave a, you've given us little snippets about what people might be able to expect from from your article in the the next volume, which hopefully we're going to finish about seven days after we record this podcast. I know. Uh, you know what can they expect from? The, I mean, I've seen the visuals. Yeah. From that trip, the the photography you did, and it's incredible, absolutely stunning. It makes me want to. If it wasn't so bloody cold out there, I'd be saying, can we go spearfishing over here in Montana? But maybe I can visit you in Florida. That sounds yeah, <laughs> more comfortable. You're welcome anytime. It's a, a, a beach lifestyle for sure. But no, I think it was something new for me, both topic-wise and also artistically. That's the first, I think that's the first story I've ever shot underwater. Um, I was happy with it. I, I wish I was a more experienced diver and I feel like I you know, could have participated a little more in the process. So I, I found myself you know, trying to dive down and I was so focused on whether or not I was going to be able to hold my breath long enough that I wasn't really focusing on the framing. And the, so I ended up kind of most of the time waiting on the surface and I could see the bubbles come up of when they were resurfacing, you know, with fish. And, um, so yeah, it was, it was really challenging both physically, artistically, mentally. I learned a lot. And I think that, it's it's something that I'm excited to talk about because with Modern Huntsman, we really haven't gone much into ocean conservation. We, we've talked about salmon a couple of times yep. and things like that. Um, but really, I think that uh, it's it's exciting to do a story about something I knew almost nothing about, right? So I've, I feel like I've just been an observer and, and being educated about it. And so I'm going to do my best to communicate what I've learned and, and she can you know, draw the red lines through it and things like that <laughs> if I screw it up. But I think that it's, it's interesting because that's a, such a huge part of global conservation that we're not talking about. And I think it's, it's, it's really exciting for me to kind of move in that direction. And, and I, I want to learn how to do it now. I mean, yeah. cause I love eating fish and you know, I can't, 
feel good about going and buying stuff at the store now because of all the things that <laughs> she's taught, told me about. So yeah, I think that, um, and then we're going to, we're going to have a food component to it as well. We've got a few recipes we shot, um, because she has a cookbook that, uh, sadly is only in French at the moment where we're, oh, you're going to have to get that. So she's working, yeah, she's working on getting an English <laughs> translation. Um, that's really based on, you know, obviously fresh in, in local as much as possible and in, 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 in simple ingredients, less than eight ingredients. Yeah. When, yeah. Did, you, when did you put that out? Um, it was um, last April. Oh, okay. Just, so it's a fairly recent project. Yes. I just wanted to basically show people that I can eat in a fantastic way with very little ingredients around them and just through simplicity. What's the best way for, for people to get into spearfishing? Because I'm sure that there's at least a handful of people after listening to this podcast thinking, I got to try this. I actually wanted to mention that if you want to start spearfishing, the first you step... <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it's to do a free life class. You have to do a free life class. Okay. It's crucial. It's the base. It's what's going to keep you safe. Even though I did say that... Um, Spearfishing is the second most dangerous sport in the world. It is, but if you actually respect the safety rules, it makes it it makes it way, 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 way safer. It makes it like maybe number five. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't control what a shark is going to do. Sure. I guess you got to tell. I'm sorry. We, you got to tell that story uh, about. Well, the you can choose which one, right? Which I know one? There's the shallow water, or we could do both. Yeah. <laughs> Whichever one you think is the scariest. My shark stories. Um, yeah. Probably my Tampa one. So another very good example of when you don't follow rules, things can go really wrong. I was in my friend with my friends in the water. It was about 15 feet of water. It was like five meters, super shallow stuff. We're all very experienced divers. So everybody just kind of scattered around. Everybody was doing their own thing. Not buddying up. No, exactly. Which is why... I also want to tell that story because, you know, most of the people that I know that lost, that passed away, spearfishing, they were always experienced divers. This is when the ocean gets dangerous. This is when your ego starts getting in the way and you think that you're stronger and everything. This is why it's very important to stay humble every time you go spearfishing. It doesn't matter if you've been spearfishing for 50 years. You still have to remember all the rules. Anyways, back to the story. I'm in the water. I'm shooting this hogfish. And I look up and I realize the boat was actually really far away. So I clipped the fish to the back of my gun. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to slowly go back to the boat and I'll, I'll keep hunting on, on the way back. And a tiger shark just arrived. He's right in front of me. And I see he's young. I see he's skinny. I see he's hungry. Like, I could tell he's not in a good mood whatsoever. So I'm like, oh, okay. So there's nobody. I'm trying to scream like, help. And then nobody's coming because nobody's, everybody's doing their own thing. And I'm like, okay, shit, what do I do? And the shark start charging me. So I'm, I'm, I'm with my gun and I'm pushing it away as hard as I can. But I have a fish attached to it and it's dangling in his face. <laughs> like a lure. <laughs> it was, but he was charging me so often that I didn't even have time to take the fish off. Otherwise, I was just like going to clip it. But I didn't even have time to do that. It was, it was maybe from distance from me to you. So maybe like a meter and a half. And he was just charging and charging. So with my gun, I was trying to aim for the eyes, the gills, the nose. I was just trying to aim when it would hurt. And I was going with all my force on the water to try to push it. And he wouldn't, he just wouldn't give up. And at some point, 
you roll his eyes back, which is when a shark is about to eat. Ooh. And I was like, and you could see this. I could see it. He, he was literally from me to you. Oh. So I was like, well, okay, I got a good run in life, but this is <laughs> this is this is it. You know, it's gonna be. If he decides that he wants to eat me. There's you nothing. There's nothing him. I can do about it. Literally nothing. How big is he? I thought about shooting it. Of course, I had a load of gun. But then I was like, if I miss it, it's probably going to make things even worse. So I really, I probably would have shot it if he were gone full-blown trying to eat me. Because, again, I would never shoot a shark, but if I have to pick between my own life and, the, like, I don't think nobody <laughs> would pick the shark. Fine, eat me. I'm in your territory. Please eat me. That sounds really good and on Facebook, but in real life, it's actually not how people react. Um, and then one of my friends who heard me screaming thought I just had a big fish and I needed help. She comes next to me and he's like, I'm like, there's a freaking tiger shark. Just put your back against mine, cover your half or cover mine. And we're like this and we're waiting. The poor little guy was 17 at a time. He's from Montreal and he asked me to take him fishing. So I flew him to Florida so he can come fish with me for a week. And I'm like, oh God, if he gets bit like his parents are going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're pushing in but then the, the, the shark sorry we were two so at some point he just left he didn't like being being outnumbered so I, I was screaming as, as often as I could for one of my friends to come help me and then swim back to the boat and I'm like my heart is pounding I put my gun down and I hear my friend shark I'm like hey no shit you dumbass I'm like I've been screaming for your help for the last like 20 minutes in the water and then everybody got in a boat and the shark just starts circling. And same shark? Yeah, the same shark. He was very aggressive. Wow. So that's one of my stories. Okay, all those people that I said probably want to go and try spearfishing have, <laughs> have all just decided that it's, <laughs> it's definitely too dangerous to so screw that. <laughs> but when you two, it's fine. That's another reason why it's very important to be two people in the water. Sharks are way more intimidated by two people than by just one. I think my heart started to go yeah. a little bit fast <laughs> listening to that story. But we're used to it. You know, like I live in Tampa, as I go from Mexico, it's very murky, it's very sharky. You just have to, you know, make sure that that you follow Body rules up. and you look around and you, you watch your back, which so is the most important thing. How often are the people who spearfish hit by sharks? Maybe Is it like twice, a handful of times a year? Or? Maybe three times a year, something Globally. like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that much. pretty right. small numbers then. One still. of my friends got bit this summer. Badly? In the Bahamas. Pretty bad. <laughs> There's two pe two spear fishermen that I got, both in the Bahamas. In July, last year, there was a doctor that got bit in the face. It it, hap it happens. It happens. But they're wild creatures, you know, and it's it's... There's a limit to what you can control. There's not much. I mean, you're for, in their environment after all. For a hunter, I guess it's the same thing that facing a grizzly bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's similar. Or a lion, or a leopard, yeah. or a buffalo, or uh, yeah, anything. The shark is not going to go for you. Yeah, it's very. I I saw thousands of sharks, and apart maybe like one encounter when it was very aggressive with me. I had other stories, but I had a fish, so it's just a little bit different. You have to be careful about what you call a feeding frenzy with sharks. Because when they start eating, that's when they roll their eyes. They don't see anything. They just... They're just munching. They're just munching and they don't care. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick the location. I'll go spearfishing with you. Along <laughs> with those sharks. No, it's very fishy. You should come. There's <laughs> a lot not, of fish. You're not selling it to me now. <laughs> I didn't see any sharks. Yeah, that's the problem, Tyler. You didn't see them. <laughs> <laughs> they stay back. They don't really... Unless it depends. So when you go blue water hunting, when you have a lot of lot of water, and you hunt for migratory, 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 migratory species, then it's a different. Can be pretty much a different game. I went to locations. Why was one of them? French Polynesia, or even in Florida, you jump in the water, and straight away there's twenty sharks, and just waiting. They know what you're doing. They're just waiting for you to shoot a fish to eat it. They're pretty lazy. So how do, you, how do you get the fish out when you've got all these mouths that want to take this fish off you? You have to try to get a kill shot. That way it doesn't oh, so vibrate. They don't vibrate. Okay. So the, the strike don't go. You can pretty much pull it up one in front of his, out of his face and it's not going to do much about it. But if it starts going crazy and the shark goes crazy, you start chasing it. So you have either you have your buddy needs to dive down and go next to the fish and poke the shark away. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, you know, casual. Yeah, just uh, take care of that shark for me. I'm gonna get their fish Jeez. back up to the boat. That's that's pretty much what what, what you have yeah. to do. So a yeah. friend of mine shot a super big wahoo in New Caledonia, and it was like 20 sharks in the water. So I had to go down, then I had to make sure protect the fish. And that person, you have to like reeling the fish as fast as you can. You put it in the boat and and do and it again. It. Do I'm it all over again. I'm honestly not sure if I have the balls for this. <laughs> <laughs> you get used to it I mean yeah. I, I, I It's it, It's you know But somebody would say The same thing about Being in the bush With elephants Yeah I guess so Yeah so, It's what you're used to I Yeah suppose. exactly You get you get used to it I mean I grew up Having panic attacks And being scared Of my own freaking shadow So it's And now I see a shark I'm like elbow in the face I'm like just Get out of my way <laughs> So It's wh- habits Where are you off to next Is uh, Where's your next Location that's not Home in Florida for spearfishing. Are you going anywhere nice? I'm going to Bermuda in a week. It's fun because it's just very... Bermuda, Bahamas, those are probably my favorite places on Earth too to be. So Bahamas is my favorite destination. Is there uh, much spearfishing that goes on outside the ocean? Because it's all in the ocean we've been talking about. This freshwater spearfishing, it's way more regulated. It's a little bit harder. In North America? Yes. Yeah. Well, people do it here. I mean, I've never, I don't, I've never been there to witness it, but there's a couple of guys I know who do it in lakes here for pike and big fish. That could be fun. Yeah. I, I could, could deal with that. There. There's no sharks there. We'll start there. <laughs> yeah. Valentine, it's been fantastic to speak to you. Um, you know, about a, a subject which I knew nothing about. So a little bit like you putting the article together, Tyler. You know, I've been fascinated to, to hear the ins and outs and, you know, what's involved. And you've definitely tickled my fancy, to, you know, to, <laughs> uh, despite the sharks. You've definitely tickled my fancy to, to give it a go. Uh, and, yeah, ocean, ocean conservation is something that's you see stuff about all the time, but I think we could all do with investing a bit more time into learning about it beyond the obvious stuff. You know, everyone knows about the plastics, which is important, but beyond the obvious stuff, investing a bit more time in, in ocean conservation and, and our choices as consumers uh, goes a long way. Vary your diet, pick the right stuff, go outside of obvious choices when you're buying seafood and that's, that would be a huge step already. 
And if you like this conversation, then you're going to have to pick up Volume 4, Modern Huntsman. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Soon. One of, one of many freaking awesome articles. Yeah, there. there's a lot of good stuff in it. It's going to be... Uh, I well, mean, I say this every time, but you know, it's like we release an issue. It's like, oh, this one's definitely better than the last one. <laughs> but th- this will definitely be better than Volume 3. I mean, and I, you know, I was really happy with what yeah. we did with Volume 3, but this is unbelievably and uh and humbling uh just how many amazing women there are out there that do really cool stuff yeah. that yeah no, i can't Excited i can't wait i can't wait to see the reaction like mm-hmm. the global reaction mm-hmm. to volume four when it goes out i think uh i'm not sure it's really been done before I, not that i know i mean there's you know people who've done women focused things but as far as i know in the hunting and conservation world it hasn't been done most of the time when people do women's issue and stuff it's always based on popularity and very rarely on skills. Yeah, I mean, this is about substance. Exactly. As, as all of Modern Huntsman is. Yeah, well... Those I, are all, like, very badass, accomplished women that can do everything mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the same spirit of what we've been trying to give people the spotlight in the microphone who don't get it in in general, same thing with, with these women is it's, uh you know, a lot of them live quiet lives and uh, secretly are out here in the American West and... <laughs> We've started to meet thing. some of them, and it just—it's you know—it's been—it's blown me away uh, how how much there is. We could do ten volumes on it. Well, th- we've got a lot of years left, hopefully. I, I so, hope we, so we can we can do another I another so. women's issue in the future. I hope so. Well, thanks for both of you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Of course, we will be back in two weeks' time. If you would like to support the show. Head over to Patreon and check us out there. There's a whole host of tiers at different amounts, and hopefully you can find one uh, that will allow you to help support us and make the podcast. Our podcast supporter is Modern Huntsman, and Volume 4 is available for pre-order right now on their website, uh, modernhuntsman.com. And Volume 3, if you haven't got your hands on a copy yet, should be shipped out to you within a few days of ordering. And that is also on their website and on ours, thepacebrothers.com. And I think potentially the next one, we can have a little chat about uh, what we've been up to because I've not even talked about where I've just been yep. at all. I've not told you anything. Yeah. For the last four months between us, we've done Tanzania, Botswana, Namibia, the Congo, uh, South Africa, Montana, um, LA, and uh, in a few days' time, Fr- oh, actually, I have been to France. I was in France between then, and now I'm about to go back to France for another job. So yeah, we've been uh, we've been pretty busy and around the world for the last few months. So yeah, I'll I'll tell you all about my Tanzania trip and uh, and the other adventures that we've we've been up to. Yeah, I think that could be a nice lead into the next podcast in two weeks. If you want to contact the show, then just email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. And of course, the website is thepacebrothers.com. We're on Instagram. We are on Twitter. A few people have been tweeting us and we have been replying. And uh, yeah, we love hearing from you. And we always get a constant stream of emails and messages. So just keep them coming in. Suggestions, thoughts, whatever is on your mind. we We do reply to you eventually. It just takes time. That's all. I think I'm completely up to date. I think I found time to reply to all the emails now that have come in over the last few months because some of the longer ones I try and dedicate a bit more time because since you good people took the time to write very long emails um, I think everyone's had a response 